need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that top market. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. Violence, more money into art. We can investigate what policies. If we're going to have some real healing, we've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. And joining us now on Buffalo What's Next, longtime Buffalo resident, former Buffalo Council member, and local historian Cliff Bell. Thanks for joining us, Cliff. My pleasure to be with you. Uh, thank you very much, and we're looking forward to your perspective here on, on a couple of issues, but I want to talk a, a little bit about the Kensington Expressway. I know you were among those attending that session by the DOT, taking a look at some of these concepts. Uh, you also know that neighborhood so very well, don't you? Uh, let, let's talk about your experience in the neighborhood that was initially interrupted or intercepted by the construction of the Kensington Expressway. When I first moved into this neighborhood, it was about 1957, and I've been living here ever since. I live on a sector near Sisters Hospital. And when I first moved in there, you could get access to my home by just coming up to Fillmore, going over uh, Northland, right up to my back door. And when they built 198 West as a part of the expressway, they cut off my back uh, door and made my street a cul-de-sac. Now when you come to see me, you can go see me go turn around to the street and go on back out of there. So it's a, so it's a considerable uh, change in the way things are in that neighborhood. Uh, how did it change the neighborhood once that was built? You, you see, the neighborhood heretofore was flexible in that it had access to the other side of Humboldt Parkway, which also gave it access to Jefferson Avenue. And all those streets were cross streets, and the one that I live near was Oak Grove. And Oak Grove went right across uh, Humboldt into the other sides where Headley and the other streets are behind Kadisha's, uh College. And, uh, and, of course, that's where we went back and forth. In fact, I used to take my kids when we had a delicatessen across on the other side of Humboldt over there to get ice cream, and even on a sled. And you could go right across because there was a cross street. Heretofore, when the expressway was built, they only they disconnected all those side streets and left only East Ferry and uh, East Utica as major cross fairs, and it's completely disrupted the whole community. There's just we got used to going back and forth across Humboldt to the other side toward Jefferson. Appreciate appreciate your perspective here because you have something that most people don't. You were there when the Kensington was constructed. Was there a thought initially? that it was for the for the best? Absolutely. There was no, and let me tell you something. Plans that were being made for this expressway without the knowledge of people that lived in the, in the inner city community. I had a brother that bought a home on Humboldt, and about a year and a half after he bought his home, they come out and were doing kind of, some kind of topographical studies telling him, you're going to lose three feet of your front of your lawn because we're going to build an expressway through here. They said, express what? Because when I first moved into my house, the media that ran from the Science Museum all the way to Delaware Park 
was a solid area that designed by Frederick Law Olmsted to be a continuation of his park design from Humboldt Park, which is now Martin Luther King Park, all the way to Delaware Park and the zoo. And it sounded like, and I think you've kind of expressed this, you've described, you know, actually using a sled to, to get across and go down the street, but it sounds like it was a very walkable community, and you could get back and forth to various parts of the of the neighborhoods around Buffalo. Which was very important because, you know, there were a limited number of automobiles then, and uh, and there was a pretty decent transportation called Big Red then, which now is NFTA. It was, it was just an old, old buses, but, but they ran with some frequency, and people lived in community situations then, and uh, the communities were pretty solid. Uh, it's just that this was a complete disruption. And see, no one had any knowledge of this coming, but, but the people that were pre-warned in advance that they were going to be building this expressway. If they wanted to sell their homes, they better be thinking about doing it now. So um, numbers of African Americans bought those homes on Humboldt Parkway completely unaware there was going to be an expressway. Had no knowledge whatsoever. No pre-warning, no pre-advanced information. Well, is it encouraging then to see finally, after what we're looking at, what sixty plus years, yeah. uh, that there is now it's the same, not the exact same people, but state officials, DOT officials are now looking to make good on that mistake. Uh, is it somewhat encouraging that it seems like they're listening to residents now? It's always encouraging. Advancement is something I never got in front of in the way of, rather. And sure, it's encouraging, and it, it's a great to go. I went over to the Science Museum. I looked at all those posters and all that they had of the uh, adjoining communities, and I'm familiar with all those streets because I was a council member at large for 12 years, so I not only was particularly familiar with the messengers where I've lived uh, most of my life, but I was familiar with the whole city and how things were going in other sectors of the city as compared to how things were going within the inner city. And there was a complete difference in the experience of either one and uh, what was needed and what wasn't getting done or what was getting done. So the expressway was a disruption. And sure, I think everything you ought to do to, to try it can never be reconnected, first of all. Let's, let's, get, let's be clear. Right. The only way this is going to be a real win for everybody is if the surrounding communities get an opportunity for economic development, uh, job, job opportunity, educational uh, direction, trade experience. It, it's more than just covering the expressway. So what? And who's going to go and do what over there on top of the expressway now? picnic? Where are you going to go? We're always concerned about the environment, too, and we know that there's some preparations being made to, to kind of encompass all that, those fumes from the automobiles and all, but I've just seen just enough to tell me that there's something being planned to do. I really didn't leave the, the meeting with anything I could share with you about its, its plan, its purpose, or its goals and objectives. Uh, I'm not there yet. Hey, Cliff, I want to just jump back because you brought it up and and it's relevant to a story that's developing right now in Buffalo, and that is uh, the uh, 
reapportionment of the of the Common Council. And I, you mentioned how you were an at-large member of the of the council, and we heard somebody earlier this week basically saying they were against the idea of eliminating those at-large positions. As you see it right now, what was the value of having an at-large council member? It was probably one of the most valuable positions simply because we didn't have to cater in particular to anybody. When I was elected at large, I represented the total city of Buffalo. I went throughout the whole city of Buffalo and addressed people and talked with people about their concerns about their particular communities. And I also tried to get my my fellow council people to prioritize development within the city. Let's do let's do a district at a time, and, and within a nine-year period, we'll have did considerable things to advance a particular district instead of splitting this thing up and dividing it and who gets this and who gets what. And it's, it's always, it seems to be a need to do those things to please the people that vote for you so that you can get reelected. That wasn't, that didn't bother me from the beginning. Back to your thoughts about the, the possible covering of the Kensington. You seem uh, skeptical about the idea. Let's say I'm going to wait and see. Yes, of course I'm skeptical. Anytime you do something that actually was a mistake when it was done from the beginning, do it the way it was done. And uh, there was no advantage to it except to get people out of town quicker and get them to the airport quicker. That was one of the original goals. But that that street now, there's thousands of cars that go over the expressway. Nobody stops in the black community to do any business at all. So it hasn't been an advantage from that point of view. There's a lot of services that because they put all these big uh, outlying communities with multiple stores and all that, that people find it's more convenient to go with this opportunity. But still within the black community, there's not still a lot of the services that are not available or not readily available. There's still not a whole lot of finance being circulated within the black community. There's still a lot of development that needs to be done on Jefferson, on Fillmore, parts of Main Street. So, you know, the job is still undone. There's challenges are there. God bless the governor, everybody else that's thinking about doing these things because they think it's creative and it kind of makes up for something that was done, but it has to be done carefully. And, you know, Brother Bell is not chicken anymore. I'm on, I'll be 93 this year, but yeah, I'm still active enough mentally and physically to want to see something done that's going to be beneficial to the total community and not just make uh, Expressway a little more attractive or a little more acceptable to who? The the people that when this was done, like me, there's not many people left around that were moved or directly affected by that when it was first done. So people have become, gotten in a habit of living with this now for the last 50 or 60 years. Now all of a sudden after living with this and and trying to find our way back and forth and, and someone says, we're going to reconnect that community. I'm going to tell you something. It's, it's, going to be, it's going to be almost impossible, as far as I can see it. And uh, most certainly with those 93 years of experience, uh, you have uh, something on, on most of us in that regard, and you sound like you're, you're, you're pretty much uh, thinking, uh, thinking day-to-day about what's happening in the city of Buffalo. So let's maybe move just for a second beyond the Kensington. What? Could be what could be really impactful for uh, the the neighborhoods of the east side of Buffalo. Well, some some interesting ideas about how they can be built up so that it can be self sustaining. It's, it's difficult for a community if 
over half of the things that you need to get to or get done or get access to are not local, are not available to you within walking distance. The importance of the the store, top store, where, where this terrible incident took place, it, it was in a locale. It was convenient and offered the same or almost similar services as the other top stores throughout other communities, not as big not as well stocked and all at the time as others because the felt was, well, it's not that much demand. We'll, we'll put a market over there. It'll be okay, and the people will go there and shop. True. We could use another one, but we also could use some opportunities for employment, for development of businesses, which means we need, there's a lot of help just needed in education and opportunity that still, to me, is a little bit lacking. And then finally, Cliff, um, these conversations that we've been having here on WBFO on Buffalo, what's next? All coming out of that May Fourteenth uh, tragedy at uh, the Tops on Jefferson. Um, I'm just curious, uh, with your experience, do you sense the attention that has developed since then? That there's hope for that community. That there's hope that things are going to change for the better. I sense there's a little hope for ability to communicate. See, one of the biggest problems we've always had in America, and it's not any different in Buffalo, is we have never communicated or had conversation around slavery. And I don't care where you go or what you do, there's always an indirect relationship between what's been done today and what's been getting done for years. You know, Martin Luther King said all men are caught in a network of mutuality tied to a single garment of destiny. And that whatever affects any one of us directly affects all of us indirectly. And he went to say that nobody can be what they want to be until they're given the opportunity to be that person. And that's been repeatedly said, but it hasn't been used as a mentor for further development. Now, all the attention to all these beautiful people who, whose lives were sacrificed meaningless behind some hatred little mixed-up child who's not only out there singularly, he represents all millions of people today that have a similar feeling but wouldn't do the same thing that he did. And until people come to the place that we're all human beings, whether your color is black, green, or blue, we just can't get past black. It seems to be a hang-up that America can just not feel like they can escape. And that's been troublesome to me since I was born. Listen, I was born here in 1929 in Buffalo, in the front bedroom of 75 Monroe Street by a midwife, the sixth boy in my family to be born by a midwife. So I've been around. My father's the deacon of the church. I've been, I'm a deacon of the church now. And I've always had a great relationship with people. That's because I extend myself. And I'm curious about what you feel and how you feel about a relationship. That's important to me. I'm working now, finally, with the Olmstead Conservancy. I'm the chairman of the Buffalo African American Museum Committee, and we've developed a partnership where we're trying to make Martin Luther King Park and all of its assets a tourist destination. When we get through with the lighting and the signage and the apps and all, that place is going to be some. When they come to Buffalo, they're going to want to go to Martin Luther King Park because it's got such great value, historically, physically, mentally. Well, Cliff Bell, we're going to use that as our final word on our segment of uh, Buffalo, What's Next? And I, I do thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Listen, I'm always available with someone that's interested in talking about Buffalo's future. 
I got few years left. I'm going to spend them as wise as I can, helping as many people as I can. Watch the WNED PBS original production, Frederick Law Olmsted, Designing America. What his parks are all about is finding immensely practical solutions to the problem of building a dream in the middle of a city. Frederick Law Olmsted, Designing America, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And this is Dave Debo. I would like to underline, really, what that announcement just said. We've, we've been doing this program now for about two months. And as it progresses, we really want to include your voice, especially if it's a comment that you would like to leave for us and have us play it on air. You can do that. The best way is to hit the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app. That'll open up a way for you to just record a voice memo and automatically send it to us. Of course, we'll take comments any other way, too. News at WBFO.org via email, or if you'd like to reach out to us on Twitter, that's at WBFO. But with that out of the way, for the balance of this program, we will be talking about health, health in the community, and some of the concerns and even fears they still have but also a little bit of a concentration on maternal health and a specific program out there that works with pregnant women and new moms. Reverend Diane Holt is here from the Durham AME Zion Church. She also runs Durham's Maternal Stress-Free Zone. It's a one-stop shop for pregnant and breastfeeding mothers. It used to be called Durham Baby Cafe. Free birth planning, lactation, counselors, anything that new mothers need in sort of a, a one place in the community. And she's in a, a specially unique position to talk not only about some of those health challenges, but again, the health of the community and what they're feeling these days. Reverend Holt, thanks for being with us. Thank you for the invite. It is always an honor. I, I know you're a modest person. And I know even before we started uh, this program, you said you don't want it to be about you. But you have done so much in the community that I think that means you have a lot of stories about the community. Uh, business first. Uh, Tracy Drury wrote a nice article about you recently. Social worker, minister, nurse, child and family support services for the state. And then you added in hospital chaplain, registered doula, lactation consultant, trauma healer. <laughs> and I love this quote in the article. I've done all those in places that angels dare not tread. My mom said I jumped from discipline to discipline, but I've never lost a job. No, I never. Never I, lost a job. There were probably many times that they wanted to boot me out the door, but I've never lost a job because in, they know I speak truth. In all of the things you've done, is there a unifying theme? If it's not women's health, what is it? It's called HELPS, period. Okay. It's the Ministry of Helps, if you look at um, my background and my faith belief, that we should always have our hands on the pulse of any community that we're in. We should always be looking around, trying to figure out a way to help individuals because it is day now, but night shall come when no man can work. And you live in 14208. I live. I've lived, was raised, born, reared, raised my babies there. Everything that I do comes out of 14208. How's the neighborhood doing? 
there are a lot of still frightened people over there. Um, there are a lot of angry people over there. There are a lot of people who are confused because they're not quite understanding what's going on. And, and it's almost like things are not filtering back into the community that they should be filtering back into. Explain that last part. I'm surprised that you're saying these things still exist. Anger, confusion, uh, months. It's been a while since the shooting, but yet you're saying these things are still there. I feel it. Okay. I will never set foot in that market. I was going to ask you. The day that I live, I will not. Because think about this. There's two reasons behind I will not, two reasons behind why I will not set foot in that market. First of all, if you go to the book of Genesis, when Cain killed Abel, God heard of his deed from the blood of his brother before he got here. So blood does speak. And if you look at it from a scientific point of view, you can't get rid of blood. If you put aluminol down, that blood is going to pop up. It's going to tell you where it was spilled. Why would I want to walk on my family and my friend's blood? And you have friends who were in the shooting. Of course. Absolutely. Now, some of them are private, so I'm not going to say their names, okay? Because if I didn't ask, could I have permission to say who they are? I have church members who um, lost um, one of their family members in that church. I have um, friends whose son was um, shot and wounded. He probably will carry that bullet and those scars the rest of his life. And sometimes people want to say that I'm, uh, I do reverse discrimination. No, I do not. And I will say that until the cows come home. I do not do reverse discrimination. I'm very selective about who I will bring around the women and the children and the fathers who are already suffering from trauma. I will not allow them to ever, on my watch, be re-traumatized. Tell me a little bit about the wake-up call that you think this shooting either has been or should have been. I've watched individuals who are boots on the ground, probably more so than I am, because they're actually right there at the site. I can guarantee you somebody's probably there now. Do what I call neighborhood encirclement of the new Tops Market, crying and weeping because they believe that the community was left out. These individuals still even before the mayor's task force and everybody else started doing so, they would gather groceries and take them to the homes of individuals who have not yet left their homes. They don't. They may come out on the porch, you may see them outside, but they are not going back in that store. And that was one of the reasons I, I asked the question, will there be a way for the people in that community who cannot go back in May it be just by the mere fact that they don't want to go back in or that they are traumatized where they can't go back in for them to order online and have it delivered to their home at no charge. And now I see that's going to take place. But we've got to look at long-term things. There need to be more than just one supermarket. As I travel across the city, and I'm looking more and more now, when I go down, what is it, Elmwood Avenue, you can, there's, I won't name the stores, but there are, Different places you can stop and shop. There's about four to five places you can stop to shop. How is almost over half the city, which is on the east side of Buffalo, only allotted one store to shop in? That guy did not have to do any research to find out where African Americans would be on a Saturday morning. And yet in the past, uh, th this might be a, uh, 
a tangent, but I think it's one worth touching on. In the past, Jefferson Avenue had a Tops in the Central Park Plaza. Or that neighborhood had a yes. Tops in the Central Park Plaza. Jefferson Avenue had, and I know you're going to laugh at the reference, Figmos. Oh, no, I was I was part of Figmos. I know about Figmos. Douglas Goggins, an entrepreneur, a former manager at Tops, said he wanted his own store. So he created one on Jefferson Avenue and called it Figmos. Finally, I got my own store, PTL. Praise the Lord. Yes. You were part of that effort? I didn't know that. Um, I lived, I told you, I've lived on the east side of Buffalo. Um, I raised my babies there. I was raised on the east side of Buffalo from age probably about 12. My, my parents moved out of the Fruit Belt, which is east side of Buffalo. Sure, sure. Into Cold Springs. A lot of folks don't even know that that area there is called Cold that Springs. That area, right, along Jefferson Avenue near yeah. the tops, Cold mm-hmm. Spring. There's That's even Cold Spring Taxi Company right around That's the corner. That's right. That's right. But and there you was a Cold Spring bottle watering company that we used to go down and can turn the taps on and get fresh um, spring water. You were part of the effort to bring Figmos? Mm-mm. Okay. I supported ah. Figmos. You got to remember, I was a kid then. Okay. And yet, ultimately, the tops in Central Park Plaza closed. Figmos shut down mm-hmm. because of a lot of uh, troubles with distribution. Yep. Could another store, not the tops that's there, survive in the east side? And I know I'm asking it somewhat rhetorically because you're going to say, oh. of course it could. No, I'm going to say, how do they How do stores survive on Elmwood? How do stores survive in North Buffalo? How do stores survive in South Buffalo? How do stores survive on the west side of Buffalo? That question makes no sense to me, only because they survive everywhere else. Why would they die on the east side? And, and we have the largest population of people gathered in one spot. Wegmans has said that their business model is based on large stores in high-traffic areas. Mm-hmm. So a Wegmans might not necessarily be the right fit for that neighborhood. I don't no, I'm going to go by there and talk. To, I, I, I love Wegmans, so I'm going to go by there and see if I can talk to somebody in, in high places for Wegmans because um, I could see a Wegmans. If you notice, the new style of the store is a Wegmans style. And there is also the talk of the co-ops, the African-American. Oh, they have saved our lives. Right. right after things fell apart, would deliver the fresh produce to us, and we would distribute it. Um, to our mothers, and to we also have what we call um, AA programs there. And our soup kitchen has not quite opened yet. Um, of course, everything is with staffing now. But we also work with the homeless population, and um, we also I have a young lady in my program who does a program called the Park her park buddies, they call our park buddies. And you might see them down there across from the bus terminal serving hot meals to the homeless. Well, that's part of the mission of one of the women in our church. So what they do is they prepare the meal, pack it up, put it together, and they go down there. So with him bringing in the food, we're still doing what we need to do. But now we don't have that additional cost. I don't put in for large grants because I tell everyone, when you put in for a large grant, you have to give... Um, you have to exhume the body of your parent and give the blood of your firstborn <laughs> in the, the reporting back, okay? I don't have time to do that and appear at your show and to do all the other things that I need to do. We're all volunteers. Nobody's paid in my program. Everyone who comes into my program is there because of the love of community. How many of the problems that are in the neighborhood now 
come from the shooting and how many of the problems that are in the neighborhood now were only exacerbated by the shooting? I would say probably about 90% of it was pre-existing stuff that was there. We're probably a group of people who I shared with um, somebody the other day that we're going through what we call um, post-traumatic slave syndrome. There's research that shows that it has an impact on our DNA. We're also a group of individuals who are going through what we call post-traumatic stress syndrome from watching shootings and murders and all kinds of stuff that shows up on television and things that happen in our own community. Part of it is being triggered by the shooting, and part of it is when you say post-traumatic stress syndrome, you're talking about generational stress. Yes, and when you when you talk about post-traumatic slave syndrome, that's where the so-called word hesitancy comes from. Because all those memories we've been told all of our lives about different things that have happened to us only because we're black, only because of the melanin in our skin. That's the only reason it occurs. But define it further, because I think it's a concept that needs to be talked about more. I think it's a concept where people can easily dismiss it and say, well, yes. Reverend Holt, you weren't a slave. You, you don't bear that. <laughs> I am a slave. Uh, t- uh, am tell a me slave. more. No, tell me. Uh, <laughs> sketch out the argument. Generational stress. I was born in a little small town called Manchester, Georgia. Georgia, deep Georgia, south. Deep south, yes. And it was really rural. And when I say rural, I mean rural. Um, do you know, I'm trying to think of the name of the little town, the Teddy Roosevelt, um, Warm Springs, Georgia. If you do history of Warm Springs, Georgia, you'll see some of my family's name in there. And I'll say them because they'll be proud to know, like the okay. Bonner family. Um, they worked in the little White House down there. They were to the cook, and we had some people who were groundskeeper um, for um, President um, Roosevelt. When I look at the fact that even my parents, who were well-known within their community, couldn't even get a doctor to, well, most African Americans could not get a doctor to really treat them for most of anything. But when my mother gave birth to me, I know now that I was presenting um, breach. But then I didn't know what it was when they were telling me, you almost died, and the midwife she did, she wanted the doctor to come and to take over, but the doctor told her, no, you do it. So my dad said, I don't know. She went up in your mom, and the next thing I know, you came out straight. Mm. Could they not have taken you to the hospital? No. They didn't take black people in hospitals in, in rural South. So um, mid, um, granny midwives were the individuals. And if you look that, that word up and you look up, it started in Georgia and, and extended into Florida. Those were the ones who were demonized during the course of time once hospitals realized they could make money off of allowing African-American and people of color to come into their hospitals. Prior to that, midwives delivered, um, granny midwives delivered African-Americans and they delivered poor white children. And they did it at a high rate of success because they started during slavery. And if they lost the property of the slave master, it could have meant death for them. Reverend Diane Holt is here. She's founder of Durham Maternal Stress Free Zone. We'll talk about more about that in just a moment. And she's a minister at Durham Memorial AME Zion Church. Through the, through the course of this program, we have talked off and on about some of the things that are inherent in the neighborhood. Health disparities, social determinants of health, certainly part of the discussion. 
Uh, I know you know Reverend George Nicholas. Ah, I love him. He's huge on the topic. We had him in to outline it. But he does a broad view. You concentrate a little bit on maternal health. And let me let me read some numbers here. Premature deaths in Erie County, 36.10% for whites, 60% for mm-hmm. blacks. Low birth weight babies, 14% for blacks, 7% for whites. Late stage breast cancer, cases per 100,000, 41 cases per 100,000 for whites, 61 cases per 1,000 for blacks. Mm-hmm. Cervical cancer, Per 100,000 people, 6.8 cases for whites, 11.5 for blacks. Maternal health, there is a big disparity that you think we need to address. And I'm not a statistician. I just work. No, but you've worked as a nurse. You've oh, worked yes. as a doula. Yes. Your, but... your uh, stress-free zone, and we can talk about that, caters primarily to moms. Yes. You, you have seen this. You don't need the stats. No, I don't. Okay. And that's the problem with those who I have to deal with. I prefer to deal with the problem and the individuals who are going through those problems rather than keep their blasting numbers for them. You've got enough people out there who can keep those numbers. I know what's going on because I work with them each and every day of my life. I carry two phones. Who would have ever thought I would need to carry two phones? One's for my moms and one for personal. I do that so that we have ac- they have access to us 24 hours a day because life doesn't just stop because we close our doors and we're not open. Life continues for them and trouble continues for them. So what do they come to the maternal stress-free zone for? Give, give me a list of the things that you do or the list of the problems they bring. When we were originally opened, we opened as Derm's Baby Cafe because right. this was not my goal, okay? This was not my goal. It was just a, one of the ministries the church did. Well, yes, it wasn't the church's ministry. The church didn't always support because they didn't always understand. All right. So I opened the 501c3 on my own. Okay. Okay, but now it's a ministry of the church, of course. But at that particular time, they didn't quite understand this wacko reverend. How did you sell it? What kind of things did you say? I, just, I did it. Okay. Sometimes um, action speaks louder than words. All right. When you see the moms, we, plus we got pastors who would come through, and they would see the tears, and they would see the people healing, and they would see the fact that what we were doing was what Jesus did. He fed them. You can't feed, you can't minister or talk or work with someone on an empty stomach. So we cook a meal, a hot meal for them or um, something that they can't afford to buy for themselves. Um, we'll get it for them and we'll bring it in. And we also introduce to them foods that they've probably never had before because there were a lot of moms who told me kids don't eat salads. And I have pictures and photo, videos of the children. I'll be like, is that salad good for you, baby? And they'd be, <laughs> yeah. So it's a counseling service. It's a food Pantry or, or Meals on Wheels kind of program? Yeah, meals if you come in. We don't right. allow. Yeah, yeah, I hear We don't you. know if they have refrigeration and a lot of other stuff. We do now know what most of the mothers do because we were closed for two years because of COVID. So we had to go to places where angels dare to tread. And you do a lot of work with lactation and nutrition? Yes. And is it on a drop-in basis? It used to be until the murders. We have to lock our doors now. Mm-hmm. Um, They have to call when they get there, and I'm working on getting some type of system set up on the outside of the building where we can look 
in when we're in the dining area and see who's coming to our door. So much has changed. Um, and and that was because one of the moms said to me one day, Reverend Hold, I'm not coming back because y'all got that open door and people can come in there and we there at night and they wouldn't find us dead until the next morning. You got a point there, baby. So in the meanwhile, in the interim, this is what we're doing. We're telling them, come, register online so that we know we're coming. And when you get there, or while you're in your car, call. Or if you're in your Uber, call, because we will Uber them, mm-hmm. some of them, not all. We don't have that kind of money. And call us and let us know, and someone will open the door for you and help you in with the babies. Talk about why all this is necessary. And I'm going to use the, the word racism. Absolutely. As I shared with um, the OBGYN doctors at UB, um, during their grand rounds, everybody wants to talk about an elephant in the room. For African Americans, it's not an elephant in the room. It's a T-Rex, and it's devouring anything that's black and brown. How do you change it? Is it what you said earlier, just provide the services? And I, No, we I, have I, to be vocal. Okay. I tell everyone, and I've sort of pinpointed this because of um, things that people have said to me, um, I am a activist and I am an advocate. And we have to get the ears of those who can make the changes. And we have to do it so loud that they're embarrassed if they don't hear you. So let's put it in a clinical analogy. Um, <laughs> you treat the symptoms through your stress-free zone for the moms. Mm-hmm. You're treating the symptoms, but there's still... A bigger disease out there? Is that a Absolutely. fair Absolutely, and it's called structural racism. Did you read Dr. Henry Taylor's book, The Harder We Run? Yeah, yeah. Had him on here on the program to talk ah. about it. Some of the stats that I referred to earlier about maternal health came directly from that And that's report. why I could nod my head to you. I read his book. All right. <laughs> but how do you battle it structurally? Um, is that just... Again, putting it in a different context, but one from your background. Is that just preaching to white folk? Is that... uh, If it's so structural... My job is not to teach the white folks. How? My job is to get white folks to teach the white folks. And I've got a lot of sisters who don't look like me who are teaching to their people. Tell me what that looks like. It's the most beautiful sight you've ever want to see in your life when you get people who are in high places listening to someone who don't have a Ph.D., okay, saying, she's telling the truth. I have done that. I have seen that. We've got to correct that. So more whites need to hear more black stories about the Tyrannosaurus Rex in the room. Yeah. And that will do it? I I, I don't want to be naive. No, that will not do it because you're going to always have those who have in their heart that they have been shortchanged that, um, what is it called? The replacement theory, I think it's called? Yeah. That, That they believe that because we've got people in high places who sent that crazy garbage through the world. Do you combat it one person at a time through personal stories? Uh, I tell people again. I'm like that person walking on the beach throwing the um, starfish or the seashells back into the the ocean. And they go, why are you putting one in there? And I said, because it matters to that one. That's what we should be doing. Each one should teach one. Each and every person should be in a position where they're saying, ah, you know that's not correct. Come on, let's look at what the truth looks like. Will that propagate enough attitudinal change that the systemic stuff goes away? If enough of us do it. 
That's a lot of starfish. I know. But you're still willing to throw them back I'm in the water? I'm still willing to throw them back in the water. Do you think there needs to be a change in education? Oh, definitely. And I see in Western New York that taking place. I see physicians listening to physicians of color. I see physicians who are sitting up um, scholarships to bring in men and women of color. I see them setting up programs where people can learn about the different skill sets that they need in order to enter into medicine. It's not moving quick enough because, you got to keep in mind, the policies of our country and the policies of our state and the policies of our world stops anything that's going to bring about a rapid change. So it's going to be one starfish at a time. If there needs to be a change in education, I picture it being dual. Um, there needs to be a better way to teach black children about their heritage, I'm guessing you would mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. And then there probably needs to be a better way to teach white folks about the problem. Yes. Do school systems embrace that enough? You know their hands are tied. Let's be real. Okay. <laughs> Let's be real. That's one of those closed systems. I have been attempting to get into the Board of Education since 2013. When you say into it, you mean as Actually, an elected member of it or nah, just nah, get them to listen to just you? Just to get them to listen. And I have spoken um, at some of their meetings. Um, but to me, it's almost like it hits up against a brick wall and bounces off. Um, because they got so many other things that they must deal with. Um, so what we do is we invite the mothers so that we can teach them how to work with their children. But then when they go into the school system, it's almost like the children's needs are bounced off the wall as well. So it's until we can, I guess, get rubber walls um, <laughs> In the school system, until we can get more individuals who totally understand the need to teach about black and indigenous history in the school systems, we've got a long way to go. And you're talking more than just Buffalo Public Schools because they, ha they have made a huge effort. You're talking Absolutely. Iroquois, Springville, yes, uh, those yes. places. I told you I'm a little bit country and a little bit rock and roll. All right. <laughs> Is that something then, I, I think the curriculum obviously is regulated statewide by That's the state. State Department of so you, Education. So you lobby the state? Well, for education, no, because I'm stuck in, the, I have this battle with maternal health. I have this battle with food deserts. I have this battle with so many things locally that if I continue to stretch myself thin, I water down the impact that I have. And this kind of goes back to my analogy earlier, treating the symptom versus treating the disease. The systemic stuff could be cured by education and attitude change. But you're... <coughs> mm -hmm. Okay, I'm but, fine. Okay, we're on tape again. Mm -hmm. But you're still there on the shore throwing individual starfish. Yeah, that's exactly correct. I'm going to always throw the starfish until my God calls me home. I tell my children that I'm not stopping till I'm dead. Is, is rescuing the starfish enough? Do we need something done perhaps at the state level? Do we need a, a change in official policy? Um, and I know that structural racism is more than just politics and, and dictates from government. Yeah. But would a change in that environment help? I've seen since 2018 many changes. Um, um, our prior governor, um, 
I used to tell everybody, I got him on speed dial. <laughs> <laughs> Not true. Okay. But um, he did know who I was, which was sort of strange and crazy because when I received the, the notice that um, he wanted me on his um, minority health council, I said, he don't know me. What are you talking about? I said, I, but I had a joke that I would always do. You know the governor? And they go, yes. And I would put make a phone sign and say, tell him to call me. <laughs> <laughs> so when the call came from the Department of Health that the governor wanted me on his task force, I thought somebody was actually pranking me, okay? Until I got a call from the state um, police department who, who needed to vet me. And I'm like, this is real. But some, I believe where the Bible says... Um, your gifts will make room for you, and God will take you before kings and queens, and he did. Is the starfish throwing enough? Talk more about the political end of it. The political end of it, okay. Kathy Hoko, um, who is our new governor, apparently she sees some worth in me because she hasn't booted me off those task forces. All right. <laughs> Um, as a matter of fact, I received a card from her thanking me for the work. So they're watching. They know. Um, I'm not the type of individual who will bite my tongue. I say I'm going to die with a full tongue, okay? I did that when I was a young lady because I was raising babies and I was trying to work my way through the workplace um, system. And you've got to tiptoe on eggshells and tulips to do that if you're going to keep a job. But as I got older, my union uh, representative told me, he said, now they're de dealing with a triple terror. I said, what's the triple terror? Well, you're female, which makes you minority. You're African-American, which makes you minority. And you're, I'm not, he said, what did he say? I'm trying to figure out how to say, oh, you're mature or seasoned. So that makes seasoned. you. Seasoned. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, a nice way of putting it. Seasoned. That makes you a minority. They're not going to mess with you, Diane. So say what you need to say. So you speak truth to power. Yes. You, you, you press politicians. Oh, of course. I don't have yeah, a problem yeah. pressing no, a politician. And I, I'm not... I'm not saying that you don't. I'm saying maybe is that the answer? You know, most of the time I don't have to because Crystal Peoples is, Crystal Peoples Stokes, I see her as a dear beloved friend. If I give her a phone call, she responds because she knows I'm not going to feed her garbage. Um, Tim Kennedy, our senator, I don't care where I go. He's in the community. He's out there walking the streets. He knows who I am. And I'm friends with his community um, uh, legislative aide, um, uh, Sonetta, Sonetta yes. Everhart, of yes, course. Yes, yes. So if I call her, he gets my message. I don't even have to call him. He gets my message. If I say there's a problem coming down the Senate roadmap and it's something that's going to be detrimental to maternal health, I want it ceased and desist now. Crystal and Ted do everything in their power to stop it. I spoke uh, a while ago for this program with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. The guy that wrote a book on how to be an anti-racist, national national educator on the entire concept of anti-racism. And I had always thought that, that some of that was just language, just making sure that we weren't passive, that we were constantly fighting racism. But he said something interesting, that when you look at Congress, they pass a bill, but before they do, they do an analysis to see whether it's revenue neutral or not, to see whether we can afford to do this or not to see that we have the funds. He says that there should be a screen on almost every public policy of not can we afford this, but is this racist or not? Mm -hmm. He wants to see policies vetted that way. That's more than just getting sympathetic Tim Kennedy or sympathetic Crystal People Stokes. 
that's a wholesale policy change. Is it achievable? I don't actually see them as just sympathetic because if that's what it was. All right. Maybe I used the wrong word. Okay, okay. And you know I told you. I'll correct you. uh, Please, by all means. That's why we say this is a candid conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, They are engaged. Yes, they are engaged. But they are two out of I don't know how many. But they have the power and the pull to persuade others. Okay. Got to remember, Crystal may be African-American, but Kennedy is not. Right. And he has a voice. And I've sat in on some of the... with. um, Reverend Nicholas, he pulled together a lot of the... The Sen- Health Disparities Task yes, Force. not even just the task force, but senators out of the state to come in and meet with us at UB. And we were able to voice our complaints and our opinions. So when you've got people who can pull those who are in power and put them in a place where they can listen, you've got a force. And I don't want to divert too far from a discussion of the community. And you're certainly involved in maternal health in the community. But if you're involved in maternal health, I think it would be a disservice if I didn't at least ask you a little bit about the overturning of Roe v. Wade. How do you see that playing out here in Western New York and the country? Well, you have an advocate for um, Roe versus Wade in the governor. Mm -hmm. Um, She's determined that whatever her power and the powers that be allow her that she's going to make sure that those who are in need of an abortion have it available to them. Now, let's be clear on one thing. I don't believe in abortion, but I don't believe the country or anyone else has the right, even Jesus Christ would not tell a mom what to do when it comes to her body. So you frame it as... as Personal individual rights. It's a right that's between a woman, her God, and her doctor. It's not this country's right. Planned Parenthood, which of course does perform abortions, but also does a lot of other services. Oftentimes in the public debate, they frame it as an issue of maternal health because of those other services. Do you see an impact in maternal health by the removal of Roe v. Wade? I see it as an impact on maternal health because every woman who goes in for an abortion is not going in for an abortion because she slept with her buddy down the street and now she's pregnant. There's an article that appears in the newspaper about a 10-year-old girl who was raped. And I believe it was her raper who took her to, her rapist who took her across state lines and government is coming at the doctor who performed the abortion. Now, if we're going to do this, if we're the going to The attorney talk about, general in the state of Indiana has yes. said he is looking at prosecuting yes. the doctor. Yes, yes. And yes. the doctor has said pretty much, go ahead. Yeah, go for what you uh, know. Right, mm-hmm. right. But mm-hmm. it's an issue. I also know that a lot of things are called abortions because maybe the medical society does not have another term. Maybe there should be another term used for it, put it that way. Um, An optopic optopic pregnancy where a mom becomes pregnant in her tubes and that birth could rupture and kill mom. Could kill her. And the baby would not live either. So now you've destroyed mom and baby, because you would not allow that to occur, that procedure to occur. Um, There are times when babies are 
um, implanted in outside of the womb. And moms have carried that baby to birth. And the body, which normally expels a dead fetus, does not expel that dead fetus. So they have to bring that mother in to remove that dead fetus because the body, for whatever reason, is not rejecting it. And, and there's been times when we've read of um, situations where it petrified inside mom. That's called an abortion. So how are you going to lump everything together under one term and say, no, it cannot occur. That's death. It's already death if you don't check it and if you don't correct it. And earlier in the program, you spoke about how uh, back when in, in your oh. youth, back in your youth in Georgia, that taking black women to the hospital was just not part of the equation. Yes, that's right. They had the babies. Okay. Yeah, they had the babies. Um. But I'm speaking in terms of East Side Buffalo, 14208. Okay. When I was 13, 14 years old, around about there, because you got to remember, I'm 74. There were no places where black women really could go privately to get an abortion, but you could go to Booth to have the baby, and they put it up for adoption. You could go to Ingleside. Right. You could go there and give birth to the baby, or they would send the young lady south. Or they found the neighborhood butcher to do perform an abortion with a metal hanger. And I had friends who had that done to them because they couldn't get an abortion done. Eventually, they ended up raiding the house and arresting the person that was doing it. But nonetheless, I can't begin to tell you how many... Young ladies were tortured, were hemorrhaged, ended up in a hospital anyway because that botched type of abortion took place for them. I was surprised at the beginning of the conversation that you said here all this time since the shooting that there's still anger, there's still fear, there's still confusion. Not being on the ground in the community as much as you are, I'm surprised that's still lingers. So the question I wind up a lot of these interviews with is, despite things like that, are you optimistic? Of course I am. Because, you got to be, right? Yeah, of course I'm optimistic. I know that um, a day is like a thousand years to God and a thousand years is like a day. So it's not going to happen. We've been in this country 400 years. We were brought here as slaves. We were brought here against our will. We were dis brutalized. Our names were taken. Um, our language was taken. Our babies were stolen. The things that we believed in were ripped away from us, but we still yet stand. You still stand. But I think that we look at the events of the past couple of years and everyone, black, white, Hispanic, Chinese, whomever, saw Derek Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck. That was in everybody's living room. Yes. That was omnipresent. Um, that was something that people could come to grips with because it was right there. Yes. And I would have thought, devil's advocate here, that that then would have, because it was so pervasive, that that then would have caused change. And then we have, a couple years later, the shooting at Tops. Is, is there room for the kind of optimism you're talking about if society doesn't really change. Yes. And the reason I say yes is because now there's a push um, with regard to voter registration. And there's also a push 
to limit and to debilitate the ability of people who have the right to vote to make sure that they do not have the right to vote. We've got 60 white men, relics who are dinosaurs. I won't say all of them are because I don't know all of them, but I do know their vote, voting patterns, who do everything within their power to stop this country from making the necessary changes that need to be made. That's what needs to change until we go full force. And I'm talking about black, white, like you said, Chinese, Mexican-Americans, whatever population we have in this country. If we don't go full force and change that atmosphere, it will stay. And I see a lot of change pushing toward making sure that people understand that that crazy garbage that they're spewing out there over the airways is dangerous. I also usually use this as a final question, but I think you might have just done it before I even asked it. What does Buffalo need? <sighs> Buffalo, my God. Oh, Western New York, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, we've had the wake-up call. And to my understanding, there has been two additional wake-up calls where um, two people were arrested, one who was planning to kill individuals at Topps Market on Elmwood, Mm -hmm. And another one who was making plans to come back to the Topps Market on Jefferson Avenue to cause more harm. People are frightened because they know that it doesn't stop just because you put a new floor and a new sign and some cameras up. You've got to change the hearts and the minds and the souls and what people hear because garbage in, garbage out. If we're still allowing people to bombard individuals with all kinds of unnecessary negative talk, it's going to continue to be a witch's brew. Reverend Holt, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me, and God bless you. Reverend Diane Holt is with the Durham AME Zion Church. She also runs Durham's Maternal Stress-Free Zone. That's a one-stop shop for pregnant and breastfeeding mothers. And you can get more information about it at DurhamMaternalStressFreeZone.com. And that will do it for today's program. Thanks to Reverend Holt and earlier Clifford Bell, former city councilman, neighborhood elder, really, was on air with Jay Moran. If you missed that segment or any of our prior programs, you can subscribe to these discussions as a podcast. They're all available pretty much on any platform where you get your podcasts. We're also on demand at WBFO.org. And if you're listening live to the show in the morning, remember there is that rebroadcast each night at 9 o'clock in the evening. In the meantime, between now and then, we'll continue the discussion tomorrow. If you have a contribution, reach out to us via Twitter at WBFO or via email at news at WBFO.org. You can always leave us a message on our app. Just hit the Talk to Us button and send us a comment that you would like us to use on air. We'll use it on air here at WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening.